Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, Team Biden tells anxious Democrats to chill out. Daniela Diaz of Politico joins to talk about the Republican shutdown shit show. And Dan and I weigh in on what is by far the most consequential issue in Congress this week, what John Fetterman is wearing. (laughs) Got to steal myself (laughs) for that one. Um, All right. But first, even though the Iowa caucuses are still four months away Donald Trump is already acting like he beat his primary opponents and the 91 felony charges he's facing. He's now reportedly skipping the third Republican debate in Florida, and he's skipping next week's debate here in California so that he can give a primetime speech in the battleground state of Michigan, where he will pretend to be pro-worker to an audience that will reportedly include plumbers, electricians, pipe fitters, and auto workers, whose union is currently on strike. Uh, Trump's also been trying to pretend he's more moderate than most Republicans on the issue of abortion, uh, which is finally getting him some actual criticism from the popular Republican governors of Iowa and Georgia, as well as his sorry excuse for a primary opponent, Ron DeSantis, who hit Trump on the issue during an Iowa radio interview. I don't know how you can even make the um, claim that you're somehow pro-life if you're criticizing states for enacting pro-life protections. So I think if he's going into this thing, he's going to make the Democrats happy with respect to right to life. I think all pro-lifers should know uh, that he's he's preparing to sell you out. Sounds like Tiny D finally got his head out of his ass, Dan. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you think he said that because his favorite podcasters advised him to on Tuesday's show? I'm sure he loves you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Just before he's a fan, this. you think he's listening on on <laughs> on his way to his next event in Iowa? Absolutely, there is. A, it is amazing that all of us at the world, ourselves included, thought that Ron DeSantis could give a real challenge to Donald Trump with that voice. His <laughs> head may be out of his ass. But I don't, it sounds I like he I is broadcasting from a fishbowl. You got to think about. The I didn't voice. listen. I didn't listen closely enough at the beginning of this whole thing. Uh, you know, it's just. It's, it's bad. It's bad. So Trump clearly heard this criticism because he then went back to bragging about ending the constitutional right to an abortion when he was in Iowa. Let's listen. And last year, I was able to do something that nobody thought was possible. We ended Roe v. Wade. I got the job done. I got it done. And it's thanks to the three great Supreme Court justices and others on the court. That I appointed. So I guess the big question for the Republican primary is, are there a significant number of Republicans in Iowa or elsewhere um, who will decide that Trump coming out against a six week abortion ban is just it's a bridge too far? No, there are not. And here's how we know is that in 2016, all of Trump's opponents, they used ads, they used the media to try to paint Trump as soft on abortion by using a clip where he went on Meet the Press in 1999 and said, I'm very pro-choice. The voters rejected that then. Why would they fall for for it now after Trump's done everything in office that the anti-abortion groups wanted him to do? It's and even if there were some voters, the latest polls have Trump up by 30 in Iowa. 
So you'd have to find a third of Republican voters who thought this in order to catch him. It's just, it's sure, you know, points for trying here, but it seems very, very challenging. The guy is a cult leader who is worshipped and is the one who ended the constitutional right to an abortion. The reason that Ron DeSantis got to pass a six-week abortion ban is because of Donald Trump. It's like, and he's basically telling his voters that being against a six-week abortion ban is what he needs to help get him elected president again. And most of the Republican Party, most of the voters, most of Trump supporters would rather Donald Trump be president than get a six-week abortion ban or even a national ban. They just they don't care that much about policy. They care about Donald Trump. That's who they love. That's who they worship. So I think it's just so silly. The thing about Trump is every politician cares about power, but they pretend to care about policy. Trump doesn't pretend, right? Abortion is only a way to get more power. And if being, if be, and he would just tell people if being for a six-week ban helped them win, he'd be for a six-week ban, but it doesn't, so he isn't, right? That's it. That's it. And they're like, and he's like, he's basically telling people, respect my political judgment. This is what I need to do to get into the White House. And that's the most important goal, not abortion. And, and most of the Republican voters are like, yeah, no, we don't care. Uh, the big question for the general, though, is whether Trump can fool enough voters into thinking he's not as extreme on abortion as the typical Republican. Uh, we talked about this on Tuesday. I said I am a little worried. Uh, apparently, the Biden folks are, too. Politico reports that the Biden campaign saw Trump's comments as, quote, a flashing red light. Uh, what do you think? I share your worry. You know, this is a point you make all the time, but it's just the biggest chasm in politics. It's not between Republicans and Democrats. It's between people who follow political news closely and those who don't. And in, in yes, abortion was the issue that drove the midterms. It helped Democrats win races we shouldn't have won. That could happen again. But it's worth noting that if the turnout in 2024 looks anything like the turnout in 2020, there's going to be about 50 million people who did not vote in 2022 who are in this election. And most of them do not follow political news closely. They have, in fact, may not have paid any real attention to politics since the last time they voted. And actually, I think because the way the media environment has changed, the less frequent voters are less engaged with political news than they have ever been in the past because they're no longer running into it in social media in the same way they before, in the local news in the same way they before. And so, yeah, he has a very, he doesn't persuade all of them or most of them. He just has to persuade some of them. And that is a very real thing that could happen if we are not careful about it. They are also less likely to be either very liberal or very conservative. And I wouldn't use the word moderate, but they have views on issues and a set of issues that are complicated. So they may be pro-choice, but they might not be so pro-choice that that's going to be the issue that they vote on. They may care about inflation more. They may care about immigration more, whatever. People are complicated and they get more complicated in their political views when they are the type of people who only show up to vote in presidential elections. I know there's a lot of like running around and cheering about special elections and Democratic overperformance, which there has been over the last several years, about the midterms when Democrats overperformed and there wasn't a red wave. But again, you know, the way that the coalitions of both parties have changed we now have voters who are in the Democratic Party who tend to be to pay attention to the news more closely, who are more politically engaged, college educated voters, and they show up in specials and they show up in midterms and they'll show up in the presidential race for sure. But like you said, there's a whole bunch of other people who are going to show up who have not shown up in the midterms, who have not shown up in these special elections, but did show up in 2016 and did show up in 2020. So Trump, Trump not only uh, said that at Iowa, in Iowa, he also uh, truthed about it. He, he posted a truth that said, I killed Roe. And then Joe Biden X'd that truth. <laughs> I hate my life. And, and, and uh, he warned that Trump will go even further if he gets back to the White House. Um, I imagine that this will continue to be a focus of the Biden campaign's advertising. They've already run some ads about this, about Trump's record on abortion and what he will plan to do. Anything else you think they should be doing? Toots, skeets, threads. (laughs) (laughs) Toots and skeets. (laughs) We need more toots and skeets. I, I think it's good that Biden went after this. They should be opportunistic about opportunities to push back on Trump on abortion, to keep abortion at the top of the political agenda, to make sure it's a salient issue. One tactical thing, this isn't necessarily for the Biden campaign to do, but that some political entity could do, is in 2012, 
One thing that the Obama campaign did that was very helpful was we knew from our polling that Republican efforts, including Mitt Romney's support of defunding Planned Parenthood, was incredibly unpopular with what we used to call our up for grabs universe of voters, women within that group who were either deciding between voting and not voting or between Obama and Romney. And so the campaign went up on the air at low levels on programs that over-indexed on women viewers with months, just a steady run of ads about defunding Planned Parenthood. A similar effort could happen here. It's not going to work the same way because the media is very different, but you could see it on Instagram or other social platforms, but a digital and linear TV, you know, low level campaign about Trump and abortion that just goes up soon and stays up the whole time as a way to just make sure that he can't wiggle out of his most extreme positions. And what about putting Biden and other Democratic surrogates, whether they're politicians, whether they're celebrities, whoever, on like non-traditional media, non-political media to like get this message out there. Because as you said, there's just a lot of people who aren't paying attention to or consuming political media, political news like they used to. And, you know, you mentioned women, which is obviously key. Also young people and wherever young people are getting not just their news, but just their content in general, getting some, you know, pro-choice surrogates, uh, whether they're connected to the Biden campaign or not, you know, out there in those uh, media outlets or in those in those places where people are getting their content, it seems like that would be a good idea too. Oh, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about Trump's trip to Michigan next week. Uh, so far, his only comments about the UAW strike have been when he said on Meet the Press that, quote, the auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership. Uh, but the decision to give a speech in Detroit is reportedly making some Democrats nervous because that's that's who we are now. Um, here's a political lead now, from yesterday. That's who we are now. now. <laughs> yeah, yes. right. Yeah, now it's in like a long 20 years, history years, of self-assured years. cockiness. Yes. Yeah, that's us. Uh, all right. So here's the political lead from yesterday. Some Joe Biden allies fear that Donald Trump is outmaneuvering them on the auto worker strike. They also worry it's a sign that the ex-president has a more sophisticated campaign than in previous cycles and that Biden's operation needs to step it up. All right, before we get to uh, our party's perpetual angst, what do you think of Donald Trump's attempt to sell himself uh, as a champion of the working class, which, you know, in fairness, he has been trying to do since 2016 with some, you know, varying levels of success? This is a very sad move from the perspective of trying to get attention because voters are just going to hear Donald Trump heads to Michigan to rally with union workers. And that's, that is a signal that he is unlike all these other Republicans who want to cut taxes for corporations and do all these other things. It, it, so in that sense, it's very good. Now, there's a little bit of a myth that Trump has had great success in peeling union voters away from Democrats. You know, for, as an example, in 2012, according to the exit polls, Obama won union voters by 18 points. In 2020, Biden won it by 16 points. But just simply seeming a little bit less like a corporatist shill than other Republicans could help Trump in a state like Michigan for sure. And it's also, I mean, it, th this issue is about union workers. It's also an attempt more broadly to just peel away working class voters from the Democratic Party, um, which Trump has had some success doing among, certainly among white working class voters, but increasingly uh, non-college educated working class uh, black and Latino voters as well, particularly men. You know, and look, he he's out there. He makes a lot of noise about uh, the ills of free trade and foreign competition and, you know, says that the Democrats, so the, the, the message now from Trump and J.D. Vance and all those assholes is, you know, uh, the Democrats have sold out the working class to the coastal elites in their base in Hollywood and academia. And it's like, you know, it's like shit that Republicans have been saying since the 70s. But now you've got the leader of the party doing it. And I will say that... Um, Trump's approach is quite different than his opponents. Uh, if you want to hear what a pre-Trump uh, Republican sounds like on these issues, here's what Tim Scott had to say about the strike. I think Ronald Reagan gave us a, Ronald Reagan gave us a great example when federal employees decided they were going to strike. He said, you strike, you're fired. Simple concept to me, to the extent that we could use that once again, absolutely. <laughs> I mean... Wouldn't you rather run against that message than Trump's message, even though we know Trump's message is a fucking lie and complete bullshit? A hundred percent. Trump is, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree that from that original political quote you read that Biden's getting outmaneuvered, but this is evidence that Trump is running a more sophisticated campaign than he has in the past, for I sure. I think he is too. 
Yeah. And we should everyone should be well aware of that fact. It has we how we think about this race. But one thing he is doing is he's getting back to his 2016 roots. And his 2016 roots is run right on cultural issues and tack a little bit left on economic issues from your party. Remember in yeah. that race rhetorically, he, at least rhetorically. rhetorically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The man, the man campaigns like Pat Buchanan and governs like Paul Ryan. But he ran in that race. He 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 would said no cuts, Social Security, Medicare or Medicaid. He talked, even though it went against his own white papers about being against tax cuts for the rich and corporate tax cuts and wanting to close the hedge fund loophole and all these other things, because he understood that the Republicans had this working class base that they had to appeal to. And that he's he lost that in 2020. He turned the whole thing into a bunch of grievances about himself. And he's returning to those roots, whether it'll work or not, whether he can stick to it is an open question. But there are some troubling signs there. Yeah. And look, he also had a record in uh, when he was running in 2020. He had a record that Democrats pointed out where he, you know, stopped a minimum wage hike, restricted overtime pay, made it harder to join a union, gutted health and safety protections for workers, tried to take away health care for millions by repealing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and then, you know, passed a big giant tax cut that benefited uh, the richest people in America and uh, corporations, uh, especially those that want to do uh, ship people's jobs overseas. <laughs> so like that was his record. And Democrats pointed out, and I do think we probably need to do that again, because, you know, I, I miss the days when Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan would brag about how they wanted to uh, gut people's health care and retirement to give tax cuts to the rich <laughs> because the rest of America is filled with lazy freeloaders who are just mooching off the government. <laughs> Like they were honest about it, at least. Yeah. You know? And it's it's much more difficult to pin Trump down because he does have that record from when he was president. But again, a lot of people are just watching the speeches or looking at the headlines and not really um, checking out what the record was. And so I think that's part of Democrats job and Biden's job to remind people. Yeah, I mean, this could this could be a savvy move. It could also blow up in his face because he is the most anti-worker president in American history, and he's going to stand with workers. So if you kick, the, if he leads with his chin there and you punch him right in the jaw, then it's going to not going to be a savvy move at all. And that, But we determine whether that happens. That's something Democrats have to do. Well, speaking of that, there's apparently been a back and forth in the White House over whether Biden himself should join the UAW on a picket line, uh, which is something no president has ever done. Uh, what do you think about that? He should absolutely go. Absolutely. What do you think the conversations are like in the White House? Because I'm, I'm, I was imagining this. And I'm guessing that there is some group of people who are saying, OK, the most important governing and political objective here for the White House is a resolution that gets the best deal possible for workers and gets them back to work. And that's good for workers. That's good for the economy. And then politically, that's good for them. Right. So that's like the ultimate objective. And they're probably like, well, anything that gets in the way of that you know, maybe good for a couple of headlines, but it's it's not good for the long term objective of getting a deal. And the UAW leadership is out there being like, we don't want politicians involved, whether and they don't they, we should say also they do not like Donald Trump. And so it's not working on the UAW, yeah. <laughs> what Donald Trump's doing in the leadership. They have been blasting him. But they're like, and even if it's President Biden, we just don't want politicians involved. We want to do this ourselves. So I wonder if there's that faction in the White House that is like offering that caution, though I, I agree with you that he should go do it. I could I could just stand here and do a one act play of that meeting. I know exactly how it's know, going. Me too. That's the economic team is saying we got to get this Lawyers done. Lawyers probably we, involved, too. If we if we don't get this solved, it's going to hit GDP by 0.93 percent in the third quarter and what that would mean. And then you have other people who are saying, well, just so you know, if you do this, then the next call we're going to get is from the Screen Actors Guild and the Writers Guild to come that one. And what about when the teachers are on strike? You're going to go walk with them. And then they're going to people who say, well, now it's going to look like you're responding to Trump because Trump is going to Michigan. I get all of that. And these things are never as We're easy. We're going to get a call sound. from the NLRB, from the National Labor Relations Board. They're going to say that you're not supposed to insert yourself. And this is the regulation and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. 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 But <laughs> the only thing I would say, and these things are never as simple as a bunch of podcasters just like shooting from the hip as I just did there. But the biggest challenge for Biden on the economy is getting attention. He did it. Yeah. He's done the right things. He largely says the right things, but no one hears him. This would be one of the rare high profile moments that people who do not watch CNN and listen to Pod Save America would actually know about. So you got to take it. And that's really what I think these next few months are between this 
and the shutdown, these are the most high leverage moments he's going to have to change the political trajectory on the economy and perhaps himself that he's going to get until the campaign kicks off. And you've got to take him. you got to roll the dice. You need a high variance strategy here. It's risky, but I think it's worth doing. Now, a few weeks ago, you and I talked about uh, some of the Democratic anxiety over the fact that Biden was not uh, really mentioning Trump all that much and was not focusing on Trump. And that's because, you know, there's still a Republican primary playing out and it's still early and he's got plenty of time. Well, now we have Donald Trump, who is looking past the primary and now focusing almost exclusively on Joe Biden because he's, you know, 30, 40 points ahead of all of his rivals and he's skipping the debates and all that kind of stuff. Do you still think that Biden should ignore Trump or is it is it time to start the general here? Because I, I kind of think it's time to start the general. I think it's time to start the general, but I don't think that means that every day Joe Biden has to talk about Donald Trump. I think he should be opportunistic yeah. about it. I think Trump go like there could you could. Even whether Biden goes to the strike or not, you could engineer a moment where Biden is in f- with a bunch of workers somewhere or in some sort of environment where he gets asked a question about Trump going to Michigan. He just hammers them for his anti-worker positions. You're right. Calls them basically full shit without using those words. Like you can find some moments to do it, but you don't have to do it all the time. I do think for the outside groups and others who are already on the air running pro-Biden ads, we're probably getting closer to the period of time where you're going to mix in some contrast stuff with Trump to begin laying a foundation for the campaign when it really kicks off next year. Maybe Biden should call him full of shit. That'd get a headline. Uh. Yeah, I mean, actually, you know what? You know, when he, what did he call Peter Ducey? Oh, son of a bitch. Maybe he doesn't have to go that far, but it would get attention, yes. Yeah, guy's full of shit. Speaking of Democratic anxiety, uh, here's a headline from Axios. Biden's team tells nervous Dems just chill. In true Axios fashion, the piece doesn't actually have anyone saying those words, just chill. Uh, But it does say that Mike Donlan, Biden's senior advisor, has been telling anxious Democrats that two issues, abortion and Donald Trump, will propel Biden to reelection and that the White House plans to continue its Rose Garden strategy with a three pronged message that focuses on protecting democracy, abortion rights and a resilient economy, including a historically low unemployment rate. And here's the kicker, quote, in those private conversations, Democrats have been struck by top White House aides confidence. Some worry it's hubris. How did you feel after reading that piece? Better? Worse? Neither? Just mainly angry at Axios. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's all. That's why we wanted to. It's just it just seems like something that was engineered to infuriate everyone. Right. I know. Biden tells Democrats to chill the F out. We got this. And that's not no one said that. That's not we know Mike Donilon. That's not how he talks. Right. No, it's not. It's no. just, He's a very so soft spoken, mild mannered man who <laughs> yeah. is very thoughtful. So, yeah, it's not. That is it, the point of the headline was to trigger Democrats who think Biden shouldn't run, is being complacent, who thinks we're all uh, sort of fiddling while Rome burns here, all of that. And that's not. That's just not what there's nothing in the Biden campaign's body language or activity that suggests they are being complacent here. They are on the air right now spending real money because they know they see the same stuff in their polling, I assume, that all the rest of Democrats are reacting to in the public polling. Yeah, I was going to say, if they really are like super confident and everything like that, like hey, show us your polling. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't think their polling is that much different than than what we're seeing publicly. Yeah, and they're not out there unskewing the polls, right, or complaining no. about it, right? Which is the right thing to do, whether their polls say something different or not, but still. Yeah, don't, un- don't unskew polls, please. Um, I also, uh, it said Rose Garden strategy in there, and I'm like, what Rose Garden strategy? Joe Biden's like out on the campaign trail all the time, and he's like flying around the world as president. Like, I don't, I don't see a Rose Garden strategy from them. That also was not in quotes either. Right. Yeah, of course. What do you think about the issues that they said that they're focused on? And, and how those issues are going to propel Biden to re-election. Because I do think that we can yell about the piece, but I thought that's the piece, the part of the piece worth talking about. Abortion clearly is going to be one of the most important issues in selection. It's going to be incumbent upon Biden and Democrats to ensure, as we just talked about, that it remains at the top of voters' minds. So clear there. The economy, Biden needs to improve his numbers on the economy. No, no one has won a campaign in modern political history without winning on the economy. Biden is trailing significantly on the economy right now. Now, the ec- the use of the term resilient in there I know. is also, also something not in quotes. And it, right. And, but, that, but it is consistent with how the Biden campaign's advertising has been, which is here's where we were, terrible. 
We did these things. Here's where we are now. Now we got to go finish the job. And I think that's probably what they mean. But I've been I've been like really trying to find a way to write about the, the politics, the economy. And I've been like digging into the polling and it's so confusing. But one thing that is clear is that people are still hurting. Right. It's not all polarization. It's not all political. There's a navigator poll out this week that shows that 91 percent of voters say that inflation is a major concern. And that's not all just Republicans watching Fox News who just are hearing about it. It's there are 85 percent of Democrats say that the numbers when you get lower down the economic scale are worse. And so that says to me that even though inflation is getting better, people are still feeling the pinch. And I think that is different than I think we thought the economic messaging would be maybe a few months ago when we saw consumer confidence go up and we thought maybe it was time to make the turn. And I think that there's going to have to be a little more balance in that. And now democracy really depends on how you message it, because what are we talking about there? Is it about Trump and the big lie? Is it about protecting a political system that a recent Pew poll shows has record low approval? It's, you know, it's just that one, just how they talk about that would be very interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, there there is a school of thought that uh, economic sentiment is based on vibes, and it and if Joe Biden went out there and Democrats go out there and talk the economy up more than they do, then everyone will say, oh yeah, the economy is great. And part of that is based on you know Trump running around during his presidency talking about how it's the greatest this ever, you know, lowest unemployment rate for Black people and lowest unemployment rate for Latinos and women, and I'm doing the greatest thing ever. It's the greatest economy in the world. And I don't know necessarily that there's evidence that Trump just talking up the economy is what made people think the economy was good. Because when you do, you ask people about the economy right now and they think the economy is shit. Uh, But then you ask people about their personal finances and it's a little bit better, but you still in that recent CBS poll, I think, too, ask people like, you know, are you are you better off than a couple of years ago than you were before the pandemic? And a good chunk of people are not better off. And then there's another good chunk of people who are the same. And there's only sort of a small percentage who say that they're better. So that's like, that's people talking about their personal finances and their personal feelings, not how they view the economy writ large, right? Which you could argue is more dependent on headlines, what politicians say, what you see on the news, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're asked a question about your own personal finances and your own financial situation, you know, and if, if, if a whole bunch of people are saying that it's not great, then who are we to tell them otherwise? <laughs> I will disagree with you slightly here. I think Biden could, could improve his numbers on the economy by talking it up more. But I think that would be a false signal because what the difference between Biden and Trump is that Trump always got more Republicans to say the economy was good than Biden gets Democrats to say the economy is good. So there's a bunch of people who are going to vote for Joe Biden who are currently telling pollsters they don't think the economy is good, or even that they may not approve of Joe Biden's economic record or trust him in the economy or whatever else, he can improve those numbers. It's not going to improve him in the horse race. It's just going to get people already voting for him to say, to tell pollsters they think the economy is good. It's the But the risk, the backlash to that is potentially taking these people who could react negatively to overselling the economy, who are not in your camp yet, who fall into that persuadable universe, if that sort of convoluted thinking makes sense. Yeah. And I just think we've got to, I mean, I'm like a broken record on this, but I think we have to like get out of the, we have to get away from the question, do you think the economy is good or not? And get to the question, who is more likely to fight for you? Who's more likely to fight for the middle class and have, and Biden's message should be elect me, elect a democratic majority. Here's how we'll finish the job. And if you don't, if you vote for them, here's what they'll do. Here's what Donald Trump will do. And here's what the Republicans will do. And then the choice becomes the Democratic vision of the Republican vision, which we're going to be, you know, ours is going to be much more popular, according to most of the polling. And it gets you out of the question. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it better? Is it not as good? Which is just, you know, first of all, it's hard to answer. And second of all, it's largely dependent on the economic conditions, which we can't predict. And I would say to the White House's credit, they made that pivot two weeks ago. That is Bidenomics versus Maganomics. That is what they are trying to do. Right. Which is great, which is what they what they should be doing, I think. All right, before we go to break, two quick housekeeping notes. The next Republican debate is Wednesday, September 27th, which means it's time for another Friends of the Pod group thread. Join us on Discord for live reactions and commentary during the debate. Don't miss out. Subscribe to Friends of the Pod to join our group thread at crooked.com slash friends. And maybe while you're yelling at the TV, you'll want to wear one of Crooked's Fuck That Guy t-shirts, which are back and better than ever. 
Maybe Joe Biden should wear a fuck that guy t-shirt. <laughs> How are they better? I don't know. I don't know. I, I okay. just read what's in front of me. Someone send me one. All right. uh, Thank you, Ron Burgundy. Pick one, up, <laughs> pick one up and let it do some of the yelling for you this election season. Head to crooked.com slash store to shop. When we come back, Politico's Daniela Diaz joins to talk about the House Republican shit show that's heading towards a government shutdown. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash streaming. netsuite.com slash streaming. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. The government will shut down in 10 days if Congress can't pass a funding bill. And thanks to the utter chaos in the House Republican caucus, it's not looking good. Here's Kevin McCarthy feigning surprise, surprise, that Republicans would try to burn the place down. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. It, it doesn't work. Here to help us understand what the hell is going on on Capitol Hill is Daniela Diaz, who writes Politico's Huddle newsletter. Daniela, welcome to the pot. Thanks for having me. First question, how much do you love your job right now? And are you planning on sleeping in the next 10 days? Um, You know, <laughs> these are the times that I wish I had chosen something else to cover. But we're here every year. If you I'm sure you know better than everyone, it happens every year. This isn't too new mm -hmm. for us. But there are times that I kind of wish I covered something like, you know, maybe a business beat, maybe something more nine to five. Uh, and I don't think, to answer your question, I don't think I'm going to sleep a lot these next couple of days, but we'll see. I mean, I've already told my family and friends that this is my priority. Uh, and, and we don't know, you know, bets on how long a government shutdown is going to happen. Uh, we should do maybe, maybe an open pool or something because it looks like it's inevitable at this point. Okay, so uh, say you're someone who's just waking up to this news that there's chaos in Washington and the government may shut down and they're wondering what the hell is happening, what would you tell them? I would say right now, Congress is divided in the sense of the Senate is Democratic-led, the House is Republican-led. McCarthy, when he became Speaker, set a rule that if one Republican can oust him as Speaker, and all McCarthy's ever wanted as Speaker of the House is to be Speaker of the House. As a result, he is now having to cater to some of the most conservative members of his conference on a deal that could fund the government that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer would never support and neither would President Joe Biden. And that is what we're witnessing right now happen real time as the government is inevitably likely, I, I say inevitably, that's what we've been saying, uh, likely to shut down in less than two weeks. I want to start by taking a step back for people who haven't been following uh, this lunacy. Back in June, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy ended the debt ceiling standoff with a deal on federal spending for the next two years that was designed to 
avoid a shutdown this fall. Uh, what happened? Well, you would think that that meant that this would have been happened a lot more smoothly as these negotiations started in the House with House Republicans who apparently are not aware of what happened, you know, back during the GOP limit deal. And when I say some of those House Republicans, mainly House Freedom Caucus members who are refusing to support any sort of stopgap bill to prevent a government shutdown. But it seems like we're back at square one. You know, a lot of us are having deja vu of just a couple of months ago. It feels like it's the same debate happening again and again. These House Republicans that want to bring down spending, they want to bring down government spending. And I, I think it's really important to note for the audience, regardless of whatever happens in the House, the Senate has to pass a bill to, it's a Democratic majority. Whatever happens in the Senate is going to go back to the House, it's going to pass with Democratic votes, and then land on President Joe Biden's desk for signature. So whatever's happening right now in this debate that we're seeing with these five, seven really conservative House Republicans uh, to the right of McCarthy saying they're not going to support a stopgap bill, it doesn't matter. In the end, uh, they're probably not going to support whatever comes back anyway. This is really about McCarthy trying to keep his speakership gavel and and bend to the needs of what these conservatives want so he doesn't get a motion to vacate when this all ends. And that's what we're witnessing right now. Well, see, that was that's one of my questions. Like I what I can't figure out about these uh, House Freedom Caucus members who are the holdouts right now is like, why not just let any bill go to the Senate and then start fighting now about what they're going to let McCarthy accept when a bill comes back from the Senate. I was speaking to a Republican who said, you know, it's it's the minority always votes no. The minority is going to vote no, whatever happens. So that is why McCarthy right now is trying to pass something along party lines that he can get to the Senate. But really, the bigger picture is it's as you noted, it doesn't matter. It's going to come back to the House anyway. But right now, McCarthy's still trying to make sure he doesn't get that threat of a motion to vacate. That's the debate we're witnessing at a minute scale here of him really bending, caving in to these House Republican needs. And he's still not winning. That's I was going to it's not yeah, even say, as of this recording, I know that um, that McCarthy is still trying to get the votes to pass a uh, continuing resolution, a temporary funding bill with only Republican votes. And they're also trying to pass a, a defense bill. And how, how is all this going for him? What's what's the latest? Well, if you think of this is the way we think of the defense bill here on Capitol Hill. It's kind of a preview to what we're going to witness whenever a CR comes through. Right. This is a bill. One of the 12 appropriations bills that these appropriators all Republican have that are all chairman, you know, on this really influential committee have been working on for months with the, the top line spending numbers that were negotiated during that debt limit deal. And it still doesn't have the support needed to get across the finish line. He cannot get enough Republicans to even support that. And a lot of these Republicans were hearing from, you know, Dan Bishop saying, I need to know He's one of the ones that uh, voted no multiple times that we saw vote no at this during this procedural vote that just happened moments ago. He says, I need to know exactly when every appropriations bill gonna, is going to be voted on. I need to know that he's going to McCarthy is going to give us with a top line number. But in the end, it doesn't matter because McCarthy has been doing all of this and they're still voting no. And, and it's really interesting. Everyone has different opinions about what McCarthy should do, whether he should ignore these guys and, and start having a conversation with Jeffries. Maybe that's already happening and it's just not out there yet. Or if he should, you know, take this and and I might get a little too nitty gritty here. So uh, just bear with me. But there is a, a separate deal that's being negotiated right now by a group called the Problem Solvers Caucus that would. Yeah, I was going to ask about Yeah, that. sorry, I'm getting a little ahead. I don't. I, I, you know, no, that's I've great. Been living and, and breathing for the past couple of days. <laughs> but they voted and endorsed a deal late last night around 11 p.m. that would uh, deal with uh, a st funding the government. And it's about more than uh, about 60 members, 30, about 30 Republicans, 30 Democrats. And they think this is the way to do it. It's a bipartisan deal. But McCarthy has not uh, answered questions on this issue yet. And it's unclear whether this will get any sort of traction right now, considering McCarthy is still trying to get a, a stopgap bill passed, uh, allegedly by Saturday. Nothing has changed yet uh, in terms of vote timing at this moment. But it's it's a mess. I mean, it's chaos. And you talk to Republicans about this and they say it's dysfunction. You talk to uh, uh, Democrats about this and they say it's dysfunction. It's it's what's happening in the House right now is quite, quite a mess. What do you know about what the holdouts want 
the handful who are still voting no. From from where I sit, it seems like they just want to politically damage Kevin McCarthy and maybe even oust him as speaker, and that this is not necessarily about any specific funding or policy uh, issues. Yeah, it's you nailed uh, right on the, the nail on the head. It's it seems to be that there's five ish Republicans, most of them in the House Freedom Caucus, that that will vote no for a CR regardless of what it's in it, regardless of what it looks like. A lot of them say they want appropriations bills. The time is run out. That's not going to happen before September 30th to fund the government for the year. And, you know, something to know, and we've reported at Politico various times, is a lot of these guys are actually eyeing political futures in other roles. Uh, you know, Dan Bishop eyeing a attorney general run. I'm thinking of Matt Gates, who's floating a potential run as governor in Florida. Uh, these are people that have ambitions elsewhere. And that is a lot of the argument I'm hearing even from Republicans for why uh, and I want to be clear, Republicans that are aligned with McCarthy who are speaking about this, McCarthy doesn't really talk about this with us, um, but but that say that this is just, they're not going to switch, this is not going to change, and there's no way to get them to yes, and this is going to be, you know, this is McCarthy's dilemma. So there's no way the government stays open unless Republicans in the House sign off on some kind of bipartisan measure, right? Like there's just, there's no world where a... Uh, McCarthy House passes a, a bill that only has Republicans on it that gets signed by Joe Biden, right? So at some point, whether it's now or whether it's, it's when the bill comes back from the Senate and a, a shutdown lasts for, I don't know, 20 days, 30 days, four months, at some point, Kevin McCarthy is going to have to talk to Hakeem Jeffries and figure out how to get a bill out of the House that is bipartisan. So at that point, like, how threatened is McCarthy's job, right? Because it, 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 like I could see Matt Gates filing a motion to vacate, but then what happens after that? Or like they, they could, they're just going to keep voting and voting and voting until they get another speaker. Like what, what's the long, what's the long term play here? I mean, I think the long term play is what we're witnessing happen moment by moment here by McCarthy himself. I don't know if he's really got a strategy beyond what's ahead of him, even in in the hour that's coming, he is currently trying to keep his gavel. That is why he hasn't turned to Hakeem Jeffries yet. That is why he's not talking to McConnell or, Sh- or Schumer about what a, a deal could look like with the Senate and the House. That's why um, he, That's why he's still trying to win over these Republicans who, like Matt Gates, who would thro- threaten to motion to vacate him. So uh, to oust him as speaker, it only takes one to start that process. And so I think what we're witnessing is him trying to figure out what will work for him long term so that he can keep his gavel. But in the end, it's it's going to be threatened anyway if he goes, say, let's let's play a scenario. Say the House passes a Republican-led uh, continuing resolution to fund the government for a month. It goes back to the Senate. The Senate adds Ukraine aid. The Senate adds all these other measures that they want uh, that they can get a majority on. It has to come back to the House. Then the, it pa- the House passes it with a simple majority with with Democratic votes at this point, because that's what's going to end up happening with whatever happens in the Senate. McCarthy will be threatened regardless. So I think right now we're witnessing him try to figure out how to prevent that backlash that could happen in the future. And I think the way he can do that is by trying to pass a Republican-led stopgap measure that has everyone supportive, and then he can kind of throw up his hands and be like, well, now we have to follow the process, and now I can get Democratic votes to support this. We've seen this happen before, and it seems like that's what's going to happen again. Whether that'll work for him, though, that is the question. Is there a scenario where McCarthy works with, makes a deal with Democrats to keep the government open, to pass a continuing resolution or funding bill that is to the Democrats' liking, but in return, some Democrats say, we will protect you uh, if there's a motion to vacate. Well, I don't I don't see a scenario like that happening right now. Now, if there's a shutdown happening, maybe. Right, yeah. That could change the circumstances. I've talked to so many Democrats that are really entertained by what's happening right now on the House side. They think this is politically, yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> they think this is very politically 
uh, good for Democrats ahead of, ahead of 2024. They think it's a good move right now to kind of watch. And, and I'm saying, I'm in putting it in their words. I've spoke to, you know, dozens upon dozens of Democrats just did as a lot of them were laughing about what was happening on the house floor just, you know, an hour ago, but they, they think it's funny to watch McCarthy flail because this is, you know, a future campaign ad. This is a moment for them to win back the house. They can show that they're the party of order under Democrats and, and they can prove that they passed all this major legislation when they had all three, uh, uh, you know, they had the House, the Senate, they had the presidency, they can show that they are efficient. And by watching McCarthy not even be able to get his party united on one thing, I think a lot of them are privately and some publicly, maybe not the ones in vulnerable seats, but really enjoying what they're witnessing with McCarthy having a really hard time keeping his conference in order. Yeah, I do think it's, uh, at least personally, I think it's mildly entertaining right now. But um, if a shutdown happens and it, it drags on for a while, then, you know, you could see that you could see the politics changing after a while because a lot of folks who aren't following this closely in the country, which is most people, um, might just be like, why is why is Washington shut down? Who, What's going on? They're all yelling at each other. Can't they figure something out? Which I'm guessing is what some Republicans are, are betting happens. Well, how is the Republican caucus reacting to or are they reacting to Donald Trump inserting himself into this whole process last night uh, by basically saying that unless Joe Biden agrees to sign a bill that would force the DOJ to drop all the Trump prosecutions, uh, they should shut down the government? It's just echoing what we've already heard from these allies of Donald Trump here on Capitol Hill. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene's been saying that for months so he's he, he's he's inserting himself, but nothing really changes. It's not like more. What we're witnessing is it's not like more members are going to come out against this deal because he stepped in. Uh, if you remember, he was the one saying uh, just months ago that the nation should default on its debt, and that would be a right, smart right, right. a smart move politically. And of course, a lot of Republicans don't agree with that privately. They know that that would be very damaging because they want to win their reelection in a year and a half. And and you're right. A lot of folks back home don't really understand what's happening. They're like, why can't people just work together and prevent a government shutdown? Well, really, it's because Republicans versus Democrats. That's what we're watching here on Capitol Hill. And that's how it's always been really partisan. Now, again, you brought up the idea of maybe some Democrats might help Republicans. Who knows? Maybe that'll happen later. Right now, that's not the case. Yeah. And the, and the other difference here is usually Republicans at least try to say, oh, no, no, no it's the Democrats fault. Now it's like Republicans versus Republicans. Mm -hmm. And some like I saw Mike Lawler, who's a Republican in a Biden district, go out there and say, like, the, these people are lunatics. What are they doing And something <laughs> about his own party? And something. Yeah. And something to really keep in mind about these members that you're seeing speak out. You know, you may, mentioned Mike Lawler. There's also Don Bacon. There's uh, Fitzpatrick. They're really vulnerable members of Congress that won the majority for Republicans in 2022. And that is why they really see this as important to keeping the House majority for Republicans. They are so confused at why these really, and they say it as safe seat Republicans, are saying, we're not going to support a, a, a stopgap bill when they're like, we got, we won the majority for Republicans and we need to support this because our constituents back home expect results and they don't, they elected me so that I could bring some sort of reason to Washington. And now this is terrible. So that's why you see these members in and we call them, you know, vulnerable Republicans, centrist Republicans in Biden districts, because Biden won the districts that they, uh, in, in 2020, when they, that the ones that they represent that are, you know, throwing their hands up being like, we're trying to do something and it's not happening and we don't know what else to do. And a lot of those guys are the same ones that are working with Democrats in the problem solvers caucus on this alternative idea that puts a lot of pressure on Republican leadership in the house to move because say they can't do anything, then they do this other deal that could potentially get enough votes to go to the Senate. Well, McCarthy still faces the same issue of a motion to vacate because he didn't work fast enough to win over those five Republicans that will vote no for a funding deal. Daniela, uh, thank you so much for um, covering uh, every detail of the shit show uh, so closely so the rest of us don't have to. Um, Good luck over the next 10 days, and and I hope you do get some sleep. And, and thanks for coming on the pod. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great. Are 
Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Okay, before we go, we have to talk about yet another example of politicians' vulgarity that is degrading the great institution of Congress. Last week, we covered Republican Senator John Kennedy's speech at a public hearing where he talked lube and strap-ons and sex acts and graphic detail. On Tuesday, we talked about Lauren Boebert and her date's uh, premature ejection from Beetlejuice the Musical (laughs) because they were doing doing hand stuff. (laughs) But today... Today, the shockingly disrespectful behavior comes from Democrats. Both sides, Dan. Both sides. Um, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has asked the Senate Sergeant at Arms to no longer enforce the dress code on the Senate floor, which means that Pennsylvania's John Fetterman has had the audacity to show up in shorts and a hoodie, setting off a crisis in our democracy. Americans want etiquette and manners, and they expect more in their elected leaders. I sat on a committee with John Fetterman, and I've seen him in a suit once. It seems completely disrespectful. This guy looks like he's in a gang or he's working out somewhere. Hoodie and gym shorts convey no respect. You don't dress like a slob and expect to be respected. It's just another step in the movement by the Democrats to, quote, transform America, to take us to a different place, and to take us to a place that is much less respectful. This is just a small part of the decline of a new America. They, the Democrats, they do not like this country the way it is. Never have. I think the whole thing is horrible. I think it's part of the deterioration of this country. Civilization now celebrates mediocrity. You're pandering to the lowest common denominator. And now existing is just an accomplishment. We need to be lifting up our standards in this country, not dumbing down our standards in this country. So I think the dudes should stick to the suits. This isn't a poker game or a strip club. I plan to wear a bikini tomorrow to the Senate floor. You know, this happened in the fall of the Roman Empire. (laughs) Uh, Dan, I just want to read from a letter that was sent to Schumer in protest of the new rules. Quote, the Senate is a place of honor and tradition. The world watches us on that floor and we must protect the sanctity of that place at all costs. Signed by the same Senate Republicans whose current pick for president is a criminal defendant being charged with paying hush money to a porn star and sending a murderous mob to shit on their desks. (laughs) But at the very least, Donald Trump was in a tie when he did it. So I guess we're good. Do you share their concerns about protecting the sanctity of the Senate floor? Uh, I have a couple thoughts. First, the lead-in that you wrote for this segment is the best writing you have done since <laughs> Obama's 2012 acceptance speech. Maybe the second inaugural. I mean, it's just it's, I'm falling it's, you, far. You, you you still got it. I know you don't pick up the pen often, but it's still there. <laughs> second, I am embarrassed for everyone involved, other than John Fetterman. I'm embarrassed for the senators. I'm embarrassed for the people on Capitol Hill. I'm really embarrassed for the Capitol Hill press corps who's covering this like it's the fucking debt ceiling. (laughs) It is the Senate floor. It is not a hallowed ground. It's not sacred. 
It is a place that Ted Cruz is allowed to roam freely, right? There's nothing sacred about it. This is this is one of the dumbest things in the history of dumb things. It is why people hate Congress. Talk about having obnoxious self-importance emanating from your pores. The whole thing is so absurd. Beyond the fact that just from a point of practicality, D.C. is a swamp. It is a miserable place to wear a tie, which is a stupid thing to begin with. It'll hold it like wear a tie, don't wear a tie, don't care about what John Fetterman wears. It's so stupid. I'm embarrassed for everyone. And two people I'm really embarrassed for, Joe Manchin and Dick Durbin, two Democrats who fell right into the trap of this self-important bullshit. Joe Manchin, I expect that. I expect Joe Manchin, Democrat Cafe Milano to think that. But Dick Durbin, I'm... I'm embarrassed for you. But it's also, you, hear, you see some people who are like, well, but like, you know, in your workplace, if you have to wear a, a shirt and tie and someone doesn't wear that, isn't that a problem? And blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, yeah, if that's the workplace rules, the Democrats are in the majority in the Senate. Chuck Schumer is the majority leader. He decided that the rules are casual Friday every day, if you want, or you can wear a suit and tie. When Mitch, if, if Mitch McConnell... And Republicans take the Senate back and they want to institute a rule that you have to wear a shirt and tie, then people have to wear a shirt and tie. It's a fucking democracy. Tim Miller made this point. If you're upset that John Fetterman is wearing a, a hoodie and shorts on the Senate floor, then uh, the voters of Pennsylvania can vote him out next time. No problem. It's a democracy. What the fuck are you all talking about? Go fucking keep the government open. You're nuts. You literally, <laughs> this guy that's running for president that you're all supporting, he sent a mob to the Senate floor that you're trying to protect the, uh, you're trying to protect this the sacred Senate floor. There was a mob that stormed the Capitol and then you voted to acquit the guy who sent them there. And now you're going to vote for him for president. A lot of the mob was wearing hoodies. I've seen the footage. Ah. <sighs> It is shocking. It is shocking. If, it's not shocking, but it, while we're on the subject of dress codes, every Thursday during the summer, a bunch of Republicans wear seersucker suits. They look like they're <laughs> dressed up as Orville Redenbacher for Halloween and they go to work. You know what? We should stop that. Chuck Schumer, take a stand. Fetterman has had some fantastic replies to this. Um, he, he, he tweeted, I figure if I take up vaping and grabbing the hog during a live musical, they'll make me a folk hero. <laughs> I love that guy. And then he also tweeted, or he also said, I guess, if those jagovs in the House stop trying to shut our government down and fully support Ukraine, then I will save democracy by wearing a suit on the Senate floor next week. Good for John Fetterman. And in a city with humidity that's usually around 90 degrees, that is no small sacrifice on John Fetterman's part. I will just say, too, it's also a sign that John Fetterman is far more in touch. Yeah, also in like far more in touch with what people care about than most people in fucking Washington. Because I think most people believe that the way you show uh, respect for the institution and you show is, is with your behavior, with the way that you vote, uh, with what you do to improve people's lives, not the fucking clothes you put on your body. Boo. <laughs> boo, boo to the Republicans and boo to Dick Durbin and boo to Joe Manchin. I can't believe we booed Dick Durbin, but he earned it this time. And an I otherwise did, exemplary yeah. record of public service. This was a bad Again, moment. Like, no one's and Dick Durbin, like no one's telling you you got to wear t-shirts and shorts, man. You can still wear your suit and tie. That's fine. Like Susan Collins, if you want to wear a bikini, that's fine. That's on you. You can do you can do that if you'd like. Like probably people will make some comments, but you know what? People will make some comments about John Fetterman and he's still going to wear what he wants. Stop trying to like have one set of rules for this is a Republican thing, too. They want like one set of rules for them, which is basically no rules. Hand stuff at musicals, uh, <laughs> talking about strap on and lube. Um, they can do whatever they want in their private lives. You know, Donald Trump's probably paying for abortions. Right. All this kind of stuff. They No rules for them, but for everyone else. They want to get involved in your life. They want to have rules. They want to put politicians between doctors and women. They want to ban books in your classrooms. Everyone else has to follow the rules. Not this Republican Party under Donald Trump. You can do whatever the fuck you want. Yep. Every, they, they want to strongly regulate the audience behavior at Beetlejuice musicals. That's, what, that's part of the agenda. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad, I'm glad we got that off our chest, Dan. I feel I, I don't feel I do like feel better. We, I feel I, f I feel lighter today after having done that. So that's good. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, thank you to Daniela Diaz for joining us and keeping us up to date on the uh, the other shit show in Capitol Hill that actually matters, whether the government stays open or not. Uh, hope all of you have a fantastic weekend, and we will talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. Our producers are Olivia Martinez and David Toledo. Our associate producer is Farah Safari. Writing support from Hallie Kiefer. Reed Churlin is our executive producer. The show is mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Jordan Cantor is our sound engineer with audio support from Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Madeline Herringer is our head of news and programming. Matt DeGroat is our head of production. Andy Taft is our executive assistant. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Haley Jones, Mia Kelman, David Tolls, Kirill Pelaviv, and Molly LaBelle. Subscribe to Pod Save America on YouTube to catch full episodes and extra video content. Find us at youtube.com slash at Pod Save America. Finally, you can join our Friends of the Pod subscription community for ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and a great discussion on Discord. Plus, it's a great way to get involved with Vote Save America. Sign up at crooked.com slash friends.